are puzzle pieces. We have come together at exactly the places of our wound that line up so perfectly. We could not have chosen this. The unconscious is choosing and one person's need for touch puzzle pieces so painfully and beautifully right up against the other person's need for space. Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. Today's episode was inspired by one of Cheryl's recent Instagram posts. The post was about trauma collisions in relationships, romantic partnerships. It really seemed to strike a chord with a lot of people, so we thought it would be a great topic to unpack a little bit more here on the podcast. Okay, the graphic said, At some point in every long-term relationship, there will be a trauma collision, which is when your unhealed wounds collide with your partner's unhealed wounds. As scary as this is, it's also an opportunity for deep growth and healing, as long as both people are willing. And then in the caption, I wrote, indoctrinated by the cultural message of happily ever after, Most people are shocked to learn that relationships take work. And by work, I don't only mean learning how to compromise and share household tasks. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean the deep underbelly of unmet needs and unhealed pain that can be triggered in seemingly innocuous arguments. In other words, arguing about the dishes usually has nothing to do with the dishes. A trauma collision is when your fear of being violated meets your partner's fear of rejection, or when your partner's need for touch clashes against your fear of unexpected touch. These seemingly impassable, impossible trauma collisions will likely make us want to run or withdraw. They might trigger the thought, I chose the wrong partner, which can cascade into relationship anxiety. But if we learn how to stay present with ourselves and each other, which is very difficult and is best done with the help of an emotionally focused couple therapist, EFT. The relationship becomes the crucible inside of which we can finally heal our deepest wounds and open to the most beautiful love that exists on this planet. So I think what we're hoping to do here, Victoria, is really unpack that because we had a lot of people responding saying, say more, say more. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does this mean? And it definitely bears unpacking. It's worthy of unpacking. I was noticing as we were sitting in in the quiet before we started. I care about all of our episode topics, but how deeply I care about talking about relationships, Mm. that 
relationships are everything. All kinds of relationships. We'll be talking about committed long-term partnership here. But I think there's a lot of people who claim to be experts, but I think the true experts on relationships are the first ones to say, I also have no idea. (laughs) And I feel that way. I feel like by no means am I an expert on relationships. I have some ideas about things, having been married for a very long time and also This is what I do every day, not necessarily couples work, but working in the world of relationships, relationship anxiety being the portal. And relationships, intimate partnership has, it's, it's the center of my world. It's the center of our family life. It's the bedrock. It's the cornerstone. It's like when Dave and I are off kilter, nothing else matters Hmm. in the world. Nothing else matters. And when we're connected, it just reverberates a sheen into everything else. And we both feel that way. So I just want to start there that I will do the best I can. And we're in such tender territory that can be ripe for anxiety. So to just kind of watch that as we're talking about this. So starting with that first paragraph, indoctrinated by the cultural message of happily ever after, most people are shocked to learn that relationships take work. So what does that mean? That means that it can be really hard when the hard, the deep hard stuff comes up, that we are raised, we are conditioned, sadly, tragically, to believe that when we meet the right person, in air quotes, we will be lifted above the messiness, the pain, the loneliness, the disappointment, the frustration, the boredom of life, that it's very much the happily ever after, prince charming, princess whoever, archetype that we have really tragically misunderstood because we take it literally. And then it, it becomes embodied from a very early age that relationships are, you know, really nothing short of bliss and rainbows and butterflies. And so even though some part of us might know better it's so deep in our bones and our blood from such an early age, a pre-verbal age, that many people are truly shocked and the, to learn that it gets hard at some point <laughs> and that conflict is normal and arguing is normal. And we'll talk in a minute about the difference between an argument and a trauma collision. But I wanted to say up front, I wanted to just share a little bit more about how I view committed partnership as truly a vessel for growth and transformation and deep healing, and that it's a very different mindset. And that if we could go into relationships with that, we would save ourselves a lot of heartache. 
But if at any point we can even shift into that and recognize that conflict is not a mistake, does not mean it's a mistake, arguing does not mean it's a mistake, and trauma collisions, as painful and scary as they can be, do not mean that you're with the wrong person. In fact, it probably means you're with the right person, and we can caveat up front, we're talking about basically healthy relationships. We're not talking about abusive relationships. And if you have a question mark about whether or not you're in an abusive relationship, please seek help and clarification about that. And I have articles on my site, blog posts about red flags. Most people who come to me are in very healthy, loving relationships where there is at the core a true desire for the other person's well-being, um, where there is, you know, a general 80% rule of 80% of the time things are working pretty well. We're not going for a hundred percent. So that said, when the hard stuff comes up, we're talking about it in the context of basic health. That when we have this mindset shift that says, oh, we are puzzle pieces. We have come together at exactly the places of our wound that line up so perfectly. We could not have chosen this. This is where <laughs> the unconscious shows up. We're, we're choosing. The unconscious is choosing. And how is it possible that one person's need for touch puzzle pieces so painfully and beautifully right up against the other person's need for space, right? Or one person's need for a lot of closeness bumps, clashes, collides against the other person's need for separateness, right? And yet it happens all the time that way. So it, it, it cannot be an accident, right? It cannot be an accident. I wanted to share a little bit of John Wellwood, who has been a guide for me for decades. Um, I think he recently passed away, but he was a marriage therapist, a brilliant man. And his book is called Love and Awakening. He has many books, but the book that spoke to me so deeply in my 20s is called Love and Awakening, John Wellwood. And this is from an essay that I just found called Intimate Relationship as Transformative Path. And I'll read just a little bit from it. Couples seeking to fashion a life together today face a unique set of challenges and difficulties. Never before have they had so little help or guidance from elders, society, or religion. Most of the old social or economic rationales for marriage as a lifelong relationship have broken down. Even the old incentives for having children, to carry on the family name or trade, or to contribute to family work, providing an economic asset, are mostly gone. For the first time in history, the relations between intimate partners lack clear guidelines, supportive family networks, a religious context, and a compelling social meaning. So he goes on to explain that more, which is fascinating the way he's talking about it. I will caveat, I think this was written a while ago. He's He does talk about male-female relationships, so he wasn't 
quite with the times yet. I don't know when this was written. So then he goes on, in former times, if people wanted to explore the deeper mysteries of life, they would often enter a monastery or hermitage far away from conventional family ties. For many of us today, however, intimate relationship has become the new wilderness that brings us face to face with all our gods and demons. It is calling on us to free ourselves from old habits and blind spots and to develop the full range of our powers, sensitivities, and depths as human beings right in the middle of everyday life. I love that. What do you think of that, Victoria? As a millennial, it's really (laughs) interesting because I think my generation certainly came of age and Gen Z is coming of age in times when there's just so much in flux. There's so much change. It leaves us with a lot of questions around meaning and Mm -hmm. finding our way. And why are we doing the things that we're doing? Yes. And in relationship, the more that we have sought out a companion in our partner, like someone that we feel genuinely so close to and connected to, which wasn't Mm. always the case in the past. (laughs) Yes. The more we do that, the more opportunity there is for, like you said, these collisions. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking about how even in the relationship, between a therapist and the client, there are trauma collisions. Yes. In school for counseling now, we're always talking about transference and counter-transference, that the client can project things onto the therapist, and the therapist also has to be really aware of projecting things onto the client. And by things, I mean the past. (laughs) I mean other people from their past. And maybe they're present. And so that's what comes to mind that in our relationship, in a trauma collision, the past is right in the room with us and we don't even realize it. And we are both trying to protect ourselves. And in the process of the past washing over us, in the process of trying to protect ourselves with likely very perhaps childlike or old habitual responses or reactions, we often lose sight of protecting the relationship or doing Mm. what would invite us into, as you said, more growth. Mm. When you're talking about the past being in the present, it's such a good way of saying that. And it reminds me of, I think it was Robert Bly in one of his earlier books, it might have been in his book, The Little Book on the Human Shadow, which is fantastic, um, where he's talking about the wedding night. And, you know, it's we can extrapolate that to be anytime we're in bed. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a it's just a metaphor. Mm-hmm. But let's say the wedding night, and you think it's the couple, you think it's just two people in bed, but he said actually there's six people mm-hmm. in that bed. <laughs> at least <laughs> at least six people in the bed because both sets of parents yes. right and then exactly additional whoever mm-hmm. influential people growing up and that's how it is and i would 
definitely qualify that with at least because we know it extends so far back into the generations of how many people, if we could look back and see the whole line of them, are actually present in these moments of a trauma collision. So the difference between an argument and a trauma collision, for clarification, now that we, I wanted to establish I want to establish the vessel inside yes. of which we're talking about this because I think it's so containing and grounding in this time when there is so much in flux and there's so much uncertainty to have a vision of what are we doing here? What is, what is the bigger, really spiritual vision, psychological vision for why we're in this long-term committed partnership? What are the, what's, what is, what's the potential here? What's the goal? And like he said, you're going to meet your gods and your demons. There's going to be gods. There's going to be so much gold and there's going to be demons. And, and the vision is that we learn over time to, to find the gold within the demons, right? To recognize that even the demons are allies in disguise. So everyone has arguments. I say in the post that at some point, everyone will have a trauma collision. I don't know if that's true. I would say 98% of couples, most couples will have at least one trauma collision, but usually a lot more than that. Um, an argument is more on the surface. So one person gets irritated, maybe the other gets irritated back, you're snapping at each other, but there's not much weight or charge in it. So if the first person's reaction doesn't trigger a tra trauma wound in the partner, then it's just a tense moment or an argument. It's not fun, but it's not a trauma collision. With a collision, there are layers, like we're saying, layers that descend down to an underworld of unhealed wounds and unmet needs for both people. So the moment isn't just the moment. It's not just about the dishes or a difference of opinion about parenting. It's about core wounds and stories and beliefs that are then projected onto the partner. They don't care about me. They don't care about my needs. I'm not a priority. I don't really matter. So there's a story right, that gets attached and it happens lightning fast. Mm -hmm. right? It happens in a nanosecond. And because couples are sharing a nervous system, it happens between in the shared field in nanoseconds, right? It can just be a look. It can be a raised eyebrow. It can be a tone. It can be like, it's such a, we're so attuned to our partners. So some examples of trauma collisions. Um, one partner's I already said this one, but I'll say it again. One partner's need for connection collides with the other's need for space. One person's fear of being too much collides with the other person's fear of not being enough, disappointing their partner. One person's struggling with the projection of you're not enough, relationship anxiety, and the partner can then feel I'm not enough, I'm inadequate. Um, someone's need to be taken care of hits up against someone else's need to be taken care of. And then we have what I think is 
underlying probably all the trauma wounds, which are rejection and shame wounds. Um, and then the, the two archetypal fears that everybody has, I believe, the fear of enmeshment or the, the loss, fear of loss of self and the fear of abandonment, losing the other. So loss of self, loss of other. And I, I say we all have these, they're, they're to varying degrees, right? But we're all in this dance in committed partnership of navigating the need for separateness, which is a core human need with the need for intimacy, which is also a core human need, mm -hmm. right? We, we need closeness and we need separateness. What a system. <laughs> I mean, who thought of it? <laughs> Why? I don't know. But what I know is that there is something brilliant about it, that when we work with it, we, it's, it's like, con it's like contractions when you're having a baby, right? Mm. There's a, there's a contraction and there's an expansion. And so it's this, there's an inhale and there's an exhale. It's, it's like the rhythm and the, the life force of the universe played out in our hearts, right? There's, there's an open heart and closed heart. There's, these are, these are beautiful needs, a need for connection and a need for separateness that we are all each individuals, we are always separate, but we have deep longing for connection and deep need for connection. And so it's like, it's like a heartbeat. It's like a, uh, a cervix. It's like, you know, it's these, it's these muscles at places in our bodies that, you know, are going like this basically, you know, or there, there's an in and out. And so but what happens when one person's need for separateness triggers the other's rejection wounds, right? And conversely, what happens when one partner's need for closeness triggers the other's enmeshment wounds, loss of self wounds, violation wounds? So we all have the same needs. We might not have them to the same degree, and we might not have them in the same moment in time, right? We could even have the same degree need for closeness, but maybe just not right at that moment, mm. right? So a little bit similar to what we talked about in the irritation episode of what can come up in those moments. So, but without trauma in the way, these are just needs and we can navigate these varying levels of needs or different needs in different moments. But when the trauma enters, then we're no longer talking about what's just happening in the present moment. Then we're tracking back to what is my historic memory and experience and trauma around my sense of self and my, you know, perhaps physical boundaries not being respected. What are my historic traumas around being left, being abandoned, being shamed, being rejected, being bullied? And that's what all comes whooshing up into those present moments. And that's the collision. And like you said, in the caption of your post, 
this can happen in the most mundane moments. So like an example that came to my mind, because you mentioned the dishes aren't about the dishes and the dishes come up with people so much, genuinely. Yes, yes. This thought came to my mind of one person wants the dishes done, wants them done quickly, wants them done well, wants them taken care of because perhaps they grew up in a home where things were chaotic, things were not taken care of. And Mm. as a child, they didn't feel safe. Not only were the dishes not taken care of, but lots of things weren't taken care of. Mm -hmm. And so to them, so much rests in the dishes being taken care of so that they know I'm safe. I'm not going back into that chaos. No one else is going to bring me back into that chaos. Now imagine that their partner grew up in a house with exacting, rigid criticism and standards of if you do not keep things clean and tidy at all times, if you leave one unwashed fork in the sink, you are going to pay for it Mm. physically, verbally, emotionally. They might be abused. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine those two people trying to do dishes together. <laughs> yes. And both of them are just saying, am I okay? Am I safe here? Am I safe enough to leave an unwashed dish in the sink? Am I safe enough to ask you to clean the dishes? You know, it's the smallest thing, and yet it can carry worlds of pain. And it can be so hard to talk about. We're not always aware. Like sometimes those things might sound like, oh, well, that's that sounds so obvious if I lay it out like that as a story. Mm-hmm. But it's not always obvious to us no. in the moment. No. And this is where we ask, so what then? How do we yeah, how do we handle these moments that seem impossible. And I love the example of the dishes because it is so common. And in the world of metaphor, which is one of my favorite worlds, that you can you can really visually imagine how a sink full of dirty dishes would trigger a place of chaos in somebody, mm. right? Mm. That it looks like the mess is a microcosm for the the mess, right? The whole big layers of emotional, psychological mess in the growing up household, perhaps, where things were not taken care of. People's emotions were not to anger was not taken care of. And so there they all, there they are in the sink, right? Representing chaos and things that are not handled, that should have been handled for that one person. And then for the other person, is, oh my gosh, right? Am I allowed to be messy? Mm -hmm. Am I allowed to be a messy human? And of course, we're not just talking about, you know, the literal mess. Mm -hmm. It's all a stand-in. They're all placeholders. So I think that's the first layer of repair is, is the naming, as always. But we can name, we can shine a light on, we can begin to heal or to at least shift our awareness, shift our lens a little bit, our perspective, just, you know, three degrees. Oh, okay. 
Now I'm seeing it a little bit differently. The more self-awareness we have, this is why therapy is so fantastic, but also journaling, meditation, there's yoga, there's a lot of ways to know ourselves. The more we can come to our partners and say, this is actually what's happening for me in that moment. I don't think it's just about the dishes. And the other partner can, if they're, and that's why the last line of that caption is, if both partners are willing. So this repair section hinges on both people having the willingness to go a little deeper, to look at their wounds, to look at their stories, to be curious about their histories, be curious about what might be played out in that moment. And when each person can share from that deeper, underbelly, tender place, what happens is that then we're in the field of compassion. Then you go, oh, that's what's happening for you in those moments? I had no idea, right? And we can imagine, you know, little Jackie or little Jimmy or whoever it is in that unsafe environment. And then it often calls forth a desire to be the safe person that we know we are, but in those moments, we become the not safe person. And so self-awareness, sharing one's understory, and that eliciting compassion, that sounds like, oh, that's so easy to do. That's no. really, <laughs> we're, we're talking like high level, like black yes. belt, you know, awareness in a relationship. And again, as I said in the caption, in my opinion, best done if possible with a therapist. And my mode of choice, my modality of choice is EFT, emotionally focused therapy, because First of all, it is one of the most well-researched forms of couples therapy. It has a very high success rate. But it's, it's based in attachment theory, and so it goes so beyond reflective listening, and when you do this, it makes me feel like this, and that's fine, but we're talking about much deeper. We're talking about trauma, right? This is a conversation about trauma. And EFT, because it's so relational and attachment-oriented, understands that we're constantly in this dance, right? And Sue Johnson, who created EFT, talks about our demon dances and that we, it's like, boom, nanosecond, we're in our demon dance. And she suggests, if possible, even naming in that moment, oops, I think we just got caught in our demon dance and naming it as the third so that we're taking it out of the blame, right? Which is our knee-jerk default response as humans. Yes. It's just to point the finger like, no, it's all you. No, it's all you. Like if you would just do that different, well, you're not really listening to me. Well, you're doing – that's just what we do at first. And I think always like we just are going to have like <laughs> – that's just going to come up. But it's a really powerful first step is to name your dance together. And she suggests even naming the dance. So that's our – that's our tango or that's our, you know, like having name, that's our hurricane, that's our storm. Oh, I think we just got caught in our storm. That can be helpful. 
However, if the trauma is very deep, that's not going to cut through. And that is really when I do think people need the third. And having the third in the form of a couple's counselor, it can just be life-changing. It can be marriage-saving. And many times it is. Because we, it's so hard to see all the layers of what's underneath in those moments. It's just so hard to see it. But what I can say is that you know, and Dave and I, as I've shared in the past, have done our own years of EFT therapy. I've had many clients do EFT therapy. It is remarkably effective. And the, the healing that happens so that it's, and, and Sue Johnson is very clear. It's not that you don't argue. You will, you will always argue. You will always get caught. You will always trigger each other. It's really about how quickly can you come back, right? And how, how intense does it have to be? And if you're healing your trauma, both individually and together, then it doesn't have to be a trauma collision in that same way. Mm. I love how you talked about it as a dynamic, an ongoing, always moving, like a river, <laughs> like yes. current of energy between you. Yes. Or an ocean with different tides. I don't know, but something that is moving mm. that also is never going to just be oh, now it's all fixed and we don't we don't run into this anymore, but it's more about the waves getting smaller or learning how yes. to surf the waves together, right? Yes. I am thinking about people who might be feeling like, oh, but my partner just isn't as into this like inner work or we can't afford therapy right now. Mm -hmm. I know there are no quick, there's no quick fixes no matter what, even if you're doing therapy. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if there's anything that you think is helpful, even if it's one partner in the moment recognizing that at least on their part, they're caught in an old story, old habit, old mm -hmm. trauma response. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just curious how you would speak to that person who's like, I'm seeing it. My partner is a great partner, but not quite as aware. They're working on it, but it, there's not as much energy in in healing together right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I would first say is Sue Johnson and other EFT therapists have wonderful workbooks that couples can do together, and they can just do like one page at a time. So for a less inflamed couple, that can be incredibly effective. Um, she also has a video series that kind of walks you through and they show both, they show the couples, actual couples. Um, and so it really gives you a sense of what this can look like. And what I love too, it's like such the wide range of 
especially men, um, mm-hmm. who you just wouldn't necessarily think would be open to mm-hmm. couples therapy. And it, it's really beautiful. EFT does really well with men it, because it's such a gentle model. I think men are often very afraid of going to couples therapy or therapy at all. And when they do go to EFT, they're like, this is amazing. Like they're, there's just a way that they're being seen that they've never been seen. So I will say that first for, for the people who might not be able to afford therapy or who might not even need, you know, like a full round of EFT therapy. It is very expensive, but there's a lot of other resources that can be very helpful And it's remarkable what can happen when one person shifts a dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. When one person drops the blame and the whole, well, the whole dynamic is going to shift. Of course, it takes two. There's a dance happening at all times. And if one person has more of their awareness at that stage of their marriage, perhaps, because I do think we leapfrog in in long-term relationships. And one person can have a big growth, a big leap in their growth. And it feels like, oh, I'm always taking the lead, but then the other partner has a leap. And it could be like, we have to take the long view here, right? Over a 50-year relationship, it could be 10 years where it feels like one person is always kind of ahead, has the baton, is in the lead. But then a shift happens and the other person has has a leap in their consciousness. So when one person drops the blame, is able to say in those moments, the story I'm telling myself right now is, right? That's the great line that Brené Brown popularized. I don't think she came up with it, but she popularized (laughs) popularized it. Um, The story I'm telling myself is that you don't care about me is really different than you don't care about me. Right? It that is a world of difference. Mm. We sense blame like we sense like a bad smell. Like we yeah. we're so attuned to blame. We sniff it out just the little hint of it. And so when our partner comes without blame and from the place of vulnerability it's pretty hard to not respond likewise, you know. And even if you don't have the words for your own inner experience in that moment, there's there's going to be a shift. You know, if you're with someone who is mostly willing. You know what's so stuck in my head right now as we wind down? That yes, this is so powerful and important in our most intimate relationships. And it happens all the time in interactions with people throughout our day. Mm -hmm. It's just that we don't necessarily have the safety or the awareness or whatever to repair with every single person. But I'm thinking back on 
when I worked for the poetry festival and I would answer the phones and sometimes people would call up really angry about something. And I remember one time this man called and he was really angry and upset or he sounded very angry and upset that we hadn't selected his work for the poetry Mm. festival. Mm. And I just took a breath and I said, I know it's so disappointing. Like I'm a poet too. And it's so disappointing when I send work out there and it's not accepted. Mm. And he just softened and was like, yeah, (laughs) it really sucks. Yeah, And I would have these moments with people on the phone all the time. I'd have like someone who would call and say, you know, I'm 85 years old and I can't figure out your website and so angry. And I'd like take a breath and be like, what if this was my grandmother? Like how would I want Mm. someone to speak to my grandmother if she was Mm. struggling with the website, you know? Mm. Mm. And I could just hear in people this pain, like the pain of rejection. Yes. The pain of disconnection of like, I want to be a part of this too and I can't navigate it. Yes. Of isolation, you know? Mm. And how it's not to say that we should sit there and take abuse from people or that we always have to, you know, I wasn't always this like shining beacon of (laughs) Of Mother Teresa. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) But I think the more that we can when we see someone reacting, separate Mm. ourselves from it. Like my therapist has said, imagine like a bubble going around you, Mm. you know, like a protective bubble Mm -hmm. where you can see the other person, they can see you, but what they're doing Mm -hmm. is not about you. Again, not accepting abuse, not, not in like a oh, I'm just going to absorb this, but the bubble way. (laughs) Sometimes we can, to harken back to our episode on the power of the pause, we can take that pause and Mm. we can separate ourselves from their story. And I think that can be really powerful. I think we can connect with people if we're in a place where we can do that. And it's so good to practice that out in the wild, Mm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Because it's much less personal and yes. threatening. <laughs> yeah. And and that doesn't mean it's easy, but it's really good practice training ground for when it comes up in partnership. Because if one person can have the bubble and step back, then it's not a trauma collision. Mm-hmm. Right. Then it's just a tense moment. And the person who's not being reactive can sometimes diffuse it. And can sometimes, if you know what's being triggered for your partner, yeah, right, and you know that they're just they're needing. I mean, Sue Johnson's book is called "Hold Me, Hold Me Tight," and so so often it's just, "Can I hold you right now?" I think you might be feeling overwhelmed, or you might be worried that I'm not with you right now, or that I'm not loving you in some way. You know, can I hold you and just try to give you some reassurance and kind of just breathe my my love into your heart, right? And well, then it's all dif- then it usually diffuses pretty quickly. But that's but that's not the collision, right? The collision right. is when you're both triggered, right? Right. If you're not triggered, or even if you feel the trigger, but you're able to take the pause and slow it down. 
right? And that's why it can also be really effective to to name, I think something just happened between us, maybe, right? So that the other person doesn't feel blamed because so often, again, it is actually happening between you. Yes. And maybe you weren't even aware of a, a critical look on your face or something that your partner is picking up on, right? And then it comes out as a blame or attack. But if you can slow that down and say, oh, whoa, maybe you just saw something on my face and then I saw something on your face. And, oh, I think we're in one of those ten, one of those moments. Can we pause? Or can we go sit together before it escalates, right? Because once it escalates, then yes, at some point you do have to de-escalate and take a take a real pause. But sometimes you can pause together. Can we just sit together? We don't have to say anything because I'm not quite sure what to say. You know, and people do a lot of narrating in EFT. Like I don't really know what to say. Right? Like what whatever's going on in your head. You're thinking, I have no idea what to say right now, but I really don't want this to escalate. And then to say it, I have no idea what to say right now, but I know that I love you and I hate when we're disconnected and I really don't want this to escalate. And I'm noticing the part of me that's feeling scared that we're, you know, and that we're going to somehow escalate right now. And I'm noticing the part of me that is worried that it's my fault, that you think it's my fault. And, and, you know, hopefully that invites the other person to do something similar. Right. I wanted to say a little bit more, or, or actually also kind of hear if you had any final thoughts about this kind of core place, which I think is the core collision around our need for separateness and our need for connection. Is there anything that came? to mind for you around that? Just you naming it, I find so helpful because it's easy to kind of to demonize the avoidant person or to demonize the quote unquote clingy person. And to even name it as that. To name it like that. As avoidant yeah. and clingy instead of I have more need for separateness and I have more need exactly. for closeness in this moment. Yes, to pathologize it with yes. words like that. But when you name it as just this innate human, I want to be me and I want to be we. And sometimes that's so hard to figure out how to do. And I want you to be you. Yes. Right? And I yes. want to pr- – there's that great Rilke quote, I think, of like the greatest task in marriage is to be the guardian of the other's solitude, right? That we deeply want in a healthy relationship to cherish the other person's separateness. That we in our core celebrate our partner's separateness in a healthy relationship. And we do trust that they – cherish our solitude and are a guardian of our solitude, but that can get really murky if you're feeling your partner's need for more connection or touch or sex or however it comes out, and you're having a need for more separate. Like it's, it can get murky really fast, right? But I think naming it 
as healthy human core needs that everybody has that for most people have been those needs have not been honored right that in the early years if you grew up with a narcissistic parent your need for separateness was not honored if you grew up with a violating parent i mean same for a narcissistic parent but a lot of different ways that um that 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 your core self can be violated and likewise a lot of people have wounds around rejection and abandonment either at home or with siblings or with peers around bullying um is so 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 common and so we have these beautiful core needs and then we have these ways that those needs have been harmed right and to me that's really the beauty and the gold of intimate partnership is sort of honing, healing and honing that dance between separateness and intimacy. Mm. That's so beautiful. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Mm. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you to Jarrett Farkas for the use of our beautiful new theme music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or follow, leave us a review, share it with a friend, and consider joining our Patreon, where we share regular bonus content and also host virtual meetups. Visit patreon.com slash gathering gold to learn more.